You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Hey everyone, welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities. We are finishing up a fun weekend of recording. Uh, next time you see us uh, after this, we will probably be, for the YouTube audience, we will be in a new studio. So I think the walls are painted the same color, so it might look the same. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, evidently, this is like the recommended color for selling your house, evidently. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, this, this is Agreeable Gray. Paul Revere Pewter is the other popular one right now. So there's your... Housing tip, if you're trying to sell your house, um, get it painted, agreeable gray. and Yeah, I, I don't even understand, but, you so, know. Hey, we sold in less than a week. Hey, it works. So, um, so I'm I, not complaining. And you don't have to live with it. Uh, at least not Not until we get to the new house. <laughs> but we'll see. We'll, we'll try to get something. A little, I, this is a little more blue than I like. I, I want something a little more. Uh, it looks pink in the, <laughs> in the living room. Yeah, I want something with a little more of a green tone. Yeah, I, I like my colors. So, you yeah. know, I, I wind up have walls, all kinds of weird colors when I get to paint. And but, everyone goes, why? Why? And then it's like, no, it actually works once yeah. you put everything in. So anyway. Yeah, so, but the, no one's here to hear about that. That <laughs> I know. was all free. That's just a quick update on what's going on here. So one of the um, many things going one on. One <laughs> of the many things going on here. So anyway, um, let's talk about David and Saul and those guys. Yeah. So uh, when we left, um, left you last week and us a few minutes ago, basically Saul had been approached by the Ziphites, uh, one of the the clans in the tribes of Judah, and they had offered to give David up to Saul. And Saul just had this completely unkingly. Uh, response to it, and you tell them you've had compassion on me, and we talked about why that's problematic and why uh, it should make us cringe, and mostly because it takes us back to chapter fifteen when Saul had compassion on King Agag, and the fact that he was willing to be compassionate to God's enemies, but he's not being compassionate to God's people. We right, saw that at right. Nov. We're seeing that with the uh, the city of Keilah. We, we've seen it now uh, also with his pursuit of David. So we're seeing Saul is very problematic. And uh, I'm always surprised at the people who really want to, to try to diminish or minimize uh, Saul, just the way he acts. I mean, it's really a hard thing to do if you want to be honest that this guy has done so much wrong. He, he's really hard to to have any compassion on when you just see the, the continued rebellion yeah and because yeah. it's it's not a one-time event it, it's continued so uh we're going to pick up in verse 22 this is saul's uh extended response to the ziphites and uh we're in chapter 23 for anybody who might have forgotten but he says go make yet more sure know and see the place where his foot and he's talking about david and who has seen him there for it is told to me that he is very cunning. Now, this word, um, a room, uh, it, if you've heard it before, you've probably heard it when you studied Genesis uh, 3. This is the same word that we find in when the, when the snake is talking. The, the snake is more cunning. He's more crafty. Hmm. And so this is how Saul is characterizing David, which is very telling. Yeah. He, he thinks, like we said last week, he, Saul thinks he's the victim, and he is 
casting David in the role of being God's enemy, even though it's Saul who's uh, who's in this role. Yep. And well, and how often do we see that with people that you know? Oh, oh I'm, too often. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh no, you you're the one who, who's against God. I am the one who's defending him. And so the the he he wants the Ziphites to go back and double check, and you know confirm that their source on on David is one hundred percent, and he wants a fail proof plan. And one of the things we find in Samuel is anytime you've got a fail proof plan, it, it it's going to fail. Uh, God's not really big into blessing the the endeavors of human humanity that aren't reflections of faith in Him. Mm-hmm. And so Saul, and you know, we've already pointed out so many things Saul's done, trying to, to protect himself, trying to defend his throne, really just end up helping David. So in verse 23, Saul tells them to um, go and, and see all of David's lurking places and where he hides. And then Saul's going to come and he's going to search out David, but he wants to, to make sure that he's not off on another wild goose chase. So in verse 24a, we're told that they go and they, they, the men of Ziph arise and they go before Saul. And in the ESV, the verse is divided um, to create a new paragraph. Mm-hmm. There's some debate on whether or not this verse should go uh, with the previous conversation with Saul and the Ziphites or if it should be part of the introduction with what happens with David. These are the kinds of things that people pick up on and, and they want to argue and, and get upset about, but I really don't see it as being having much impact on the story. It, it could go either way. And so I just, when people tell you there's problems with the Bible, this is the kind of stuff that a lot of them are pointing out. And I mean, there's some bigger issues, but when they really want to bump up those numbers, they want to talk about paragraph breaks, which is kind of ridiculous <laughs> in my point of view. But um, the, the story that, that we're getting ready to go into, I think it's really fascinating, but we could miss it because it, it's a really, the way the writer tells it, we get a lot of details, but there's no frills. There's no, uh, a lot, there's hardly any adverbs or mm-hmm. adjectives. It, it's just a straight up telling of events in very sparse language, but it's very compelling in how it's told. And so we, we've, we're told that David is in uh, the wilderness of Maon in Arabah, south of Jerusalem. Um, in verse 25, Saul pursues David, and, and he goes to the rock in the Maon wilderness, and this is where David is going to live. And I'm going to read verses 26 through 29. I hate reading these long chunks, so y'all guys bear with me. But I just wanna, want you to kind of get the feel for how the author is presenting this. And it says, so Saul went to one side of the mountain and David and his men to the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul saying, hurry and come for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. In verse 28, so Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, that place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of Engedi. So, very, like I said, very terse, not a lot of extra fills, but we're, we're kind of called in to imagine this kind of cat and mouse game around this mountain where, you know, David and Saul are, are just trying to, to, David's trying to evade, Saul's trying to surround and capture, and David's been cut off. There's no way of escape. Saul is 
almost upon him. He's going to capture him. And then this messenger appears. The Philistines are attacking and Saul breaks off his pursuit. So, um, you know, on the surface, it, it seems like a pretty straightforward story. But what happens when you read it in the, in the Hebrew, when you're going along and you're, you're following the, the plot, all of a sudden this malak appears. Now the word malak, if you're reading in Hebrew, you, you're automatically going to think angel. Okay. You, you aren't going to think just messenger. And the, thing, the, the writer doesn't tell us which one it is. There, there's no, there's no direct clarification. So we're just left with context and the context is pretty, pretty bare. And, you know, the writer's kind of gotten stingy with his language here, but the, the, the ESV, so, you know, we want to look at the context and the ESV tells us that Saul went against the Philistines and it it sounds like Saul goes out and he fights them. You know, Mm -hmm. that's kind of what you pick up from that kind of language. But the JPS translates it, and Saul went to meet the Philistines. So there, there's he went to meet them. There's actually more ambiguity in the Hebrew than what the English gives you. And the doors left open about the question, did Saul actually go out and confront and fight the Philistines, or did he just go pursue after them? Because we're never told there's a battle. Right. Matter of fact, if you look in verse 1 of uh, chapter 24, it says that Saul returns after following the Philistines. So we don't even know if the threat is real or if it's some kind of ruse that is used to um, take Saul out of the game. Mm-hmm. Now, if you remember back when we talked about Genesis 24, when Abraham sends uh, his servant out to find a bride for Isaac, and we talked about how in the um, preceding chapters to 24, in the chapters following 24, the servant has a name, but within that structure of chapter 24, the name's missing. Mm-hmm. And how this is significant because in this moment, there, there's this idea that's been presented within Christian thought that these unnamed servants actually are representations of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Now, within Judaism itself, a lot of times these unnamed servants, and this also includes... Um, it includes uh, Genesis 37, where Joseph goes to meet the brothers, and he's missed them, and this, this man appears mm-hmm. uh, and points him to the right way. Or in Ruth, whenever an unnamed servant praises Ruth to Boaz, they believe that these are divine entities, uh, that they are part of the, the angelic host who have been sent on mission to help guide events. Sure. And so there's reason to think that possibly this could go on here. Uh, but again, the, the writer is very, very stingy with what he's telling us. But the point is, whether this is an angel or this is a human being, God's fingerprints are all over this. This is God stepping in to, to deliver David from a situation that he could not escape on his own. And he needed supernatural deliverance. Mm. And, you know, God can, here's the great thing about God. He can either do it through divine means, where he comes in in this miraculous appearance, whether it's through angels or a theophany or whatever, Mm. or he can do it through providential means. And just the ordinary circumstances become extraordinary because he's created something new from those circumstances. Right. And that's what happens with David here. And that's where we're going to leave David for a moment. Um, 
next time we return, we're going to come to that great story about where David spares Saul's life. And that's going to be a lot of fun. But before we get there, we're actually going to skid over to Psalms 57. Because, again, we have another psalm that is uh, that the superscription, that, that title, that descriptor that goes at the beginning connects directly with this story. And so it might give us a little bit more information on how David views the situation versus how the writer Samuel views the situation. Because remember, the writer Samuel, he, he has an agenda. And he, he sees the kingship as necessary, but he's not really a big fan of it. And he's not really a big fan of a lot of the people. And you can tell he's not real friendly towards David. So maybe he, he kind of held back a little bit because he doesn't want to give us too much good, th- you know, too many good things about David. Um, but we'll talk more about his, his um, the way the writer deals with David, especially as we get into his reign and mm-hmm. the things that David does when he is a king. So um, Psalms 57, it opens up to the choir master with, sorry, I can't read my own, write, my own writing, to the choir master with stringed instruments and my skill of David when the Zephites went and told Saul, is not, Saul, uh, is not David among us? So there's this tradition around the psalm that the, the Zephites' um, betrayal is even more heartbreaking to David than Doeg the Edomite. We're in 57? Yes. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> got it? Yeah, it, to the choir master, according to Do Not Destroy, a miktam of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. That's what I've got in my ESV. It's very different than what you read. You know what? We're not in 57. We're oh. in 54. <laughs> You're killing me here. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah. Uh, like I said, my it's own... It's always in the superscriptions, too. I'm like, what is going on here? Yes. Oh, yeah. There we go. <laughs> is it what I read that That's time? That's <laughs> what we've got. That looks a little closer to what I heard you say. A I was little, very confused. A little humbling experience there for me. So, eh, yeah. It happens. It's, yeah. uh, a it, reminder it's to... Num- it's numbers. You, we're yeah, not good with numbers. Neither one of us, never. Uh, words. Well, and... Uh, yeah, good reminder to, to double-check all your teachers. Uh, we don't always know what we think we're talking about. But, uh, yeah, th- th- this tradition that, that the Ziphite uh, betrayal is just so much worse than, like I said, even Doeg the Edomite. and. David just becomes distraught over it, and and he sinks into this great depression that he just is having a difficult time shaking because, you know, it's family, Mm -hmm. and nothing hurts as much as when family betrays you and you think you can count on them to, you know, at least be decent people or not actively do something to harm you, and then when they don't do that, it it just, it hurts, and so... um, the rabbis say that in this depression, David employed these stringed instruments and, and to lift his spirits into a state of ecstatic prophecy. Now, the word here, I did look it up for stringed instruments, is not kanor, so it's just a more generic, uh, any kind of instrument that, that's been um, being used to play. Whatever you got laying around. Yeah, just whatever's at hand. Um, so I, th- I think it's kind of interesting that it's not specifically the kanor. Because uh, we did, you know, we did the whole episode on that, and that's just fascinating. 
But the idea that David actually does for himself what he had been doing for Saul, he, he doesn't just allow himself to, to be stuck. He, he recognizes that music and praise it is, it's what we have to engage in. When we're dealing with uh, spiritual warfare, the praise and worship is one of our biggest weapons. And I, I know I've said this before, but so often when people talk about um, uh, spiritual warfare, you know, they, they want the, the popularized um, ideas of what it should look like. You know, they want, they want the, to do, do the salt circle like they do on Supernatural mm, or what have you. Right. And it's like, no, guys, take it back. You know, just, just do what you're told to do in the Bible. Invite God's presence and acknowledge that he's there. Spend some time studying him, focus on him. And this is what David is doing for himself. And, you know, there's a good chance that, yes, David knew this on a certain level um, from a time he was a boy and watching those sheep. But there's also a chance that this lesson really got driven home while he was with Saul, when he saw the, the impact of, of that harmful spirit on Saul's mental state and to recognize that he's slipping into a mental state that, that isn't good. He, he, he's proactive. So um, we're told that this is a miskill. Uh, a miskill is a psalm of instruction. So when you talk about um, psalms... <laughs> Learning teach, theology. <laughs> this is what this psalm is specifically intended to do. And the fact that it's called a miskill tells you that. And it's supposed to not only teach you know, some abstract idea, it's supposed to teach a vital, important lesson that you need to grab onto for your spiritual health and well-being. And this is how important it is, is that it's put into a song so that you will remember it. Mm -hmm. And it's not just something that you, you run your eyes over on a page. You actually sing this, and you sing it over yourself. Yeah, I was actually, I was listening to, it was pretty interesting. I was listening to, I can't remember what show, <laughs> but it was, of course, I can't remember what show. Um, I want to say is, can I say this at church? And the, I wouldn't be surprised. The <laughs> guest was, uh, he said he was raised in a Marianite home. I and I know, okay. And I know, I know, I don't know much about them, but he said in their tradition, anything that's sacred, you don't say it, you chant it or you sing mm -hmm. it. And he, so he said by the time he was in high school, he had all of the Gospels memorized because they sang them. Oh, wow. So wow. I, I thought that was pretty interesting. Well, uh, and, and that tradition would go back. I mean, even today when the Torah is read in synagogues, I mean, they have a cantor who sings the, the, the word. And mm -hmm. uh, you even have in most of your... Uh, copies of the of the Hebrew text, you'll have the canticle marks so you can tell where you're supposed to take a breath and where you're supposed to put the emphasis. And it was because the uh, the Bible was saying that they were able to go back and reconstruct how to insert the vowel, the vowel markings, right? Because right. the the original texts don't have vowel markings, and many words in the um, Hebrew, when you've got that same three letter stem, and they look alike, but they mean something different because they have vowels that are not written. But when you pronounce it, now it takes on a completely different definition mm -hmm, mm -hmm. than what it had before. So singing the, the scriptures is a huge part of uh, its preservation for us today. And I, I don't think we're taught that because we did stop singing. And of course, the other thing too is 
a lot of the lyric property of the Bible was lost in the English translation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so the fact that you you don't have the the way it flows in the Hebrew, in the English, that kind of causes some problems in us trying to, to sing what we have in English today. Right. Now, we do have some people who've done some uh, uh, good job. Um, or doing arrangements. Doing arrangements and doing them in English and in Hebrew. And uh, one of my favorites is um, Dennis uh, Jernigan's As a Deer, um, which psalm is that? Is that As psalm a deer. I, Yeah, I don't remember which one. Yeah. I know what you're talking about. But we'll have to put that in the, the show notes because I remember that psalm because I, I, I sang it. And it's an easy one for me to uh, remember. So Yeah. So uh, one thing before we get too much farther in here, I think this is kind of interesting. So in the JPS, it says, uh, Jonathan went went to him to strengthen his hand in, parenthetically, the name of God. Mm -hmm. And then you have this psalm opening with, Oh God, deliver me by your name. So I think that's kind of an interesting Mm -hmm. tie. And we, we don't, I don't know where that what that looks like in the hebrew if that's a any kind of connection i don't know if you have anything on that we're going to talk a little bit about the significance of why the name is important and as we get ready to go through this one thing i wanted to point out is the esv and the art scroll translations vary uh Mm -hmm. very significantly in some of these verses and so i i'm going to point that out when it's appropriate uh, some of them, the, you know, the difference is it, it's a synonym. I mean, so sure. it, it's not a big deal, fast or quick, you know, whatever. Uh, it, it's just preference at that point. But um, you remember the ESV will take into account the, the Septuagint and the Dead Sea Scrolls to mm-hmm. kind of fill in some of the blanks. Uh, the Art Scroll sticks closer with the Masoretic text. It relies on the translation of respected rabbis like Rashi and Malcolm and, and Rabban, uh, and they pull those into their English translations. And so it, it's good to know where the differences are because, I mean, I know it's kind of fallen out of favor, but I mean, a lot of us remember the Amplified Bible. Now, uh-huh. I don't really care for it because I don't like playing multiple choice when I'm reading my sure, Bible. Sure, But um, sometimes what one word means to one person isn't what it means to another person. And so having that variety in language can actually help clarify it and not confuse. Um, it does just the opposite sometimes. So we, we need to to be... Uh, aware of how we can use these different translations to to go deeper and right. not to get hung up on the idea. Oh my goodness, they used a different word, so now the Bible has full of flaws and it's got to be full of errors, and I can't trust it. it calm down. <laughs> I mean, and, and think about how you tell a story to your six-year-old versus how you tell the same story to a thirty-year-old friend. Sure. So sure. No, I definitely have some differences there. <laughs> Yeah, uh, so we won't talk about what this might be. So verse one, O oh God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. Verse two, O oh God, hear my prayer and give ear to the words of my mouth. So we have a threefold request right off the bat. Uh, we need to be saved, we need to be vindicated, and we, we need to be heard. And this is what the psalmist is asking directly of God. But the, the request is made on the basis of the name. And to talk about the name of God is to talk about his character. It's to talk about the essence of who he is. It's to talk about his reputation. And so the idea that the name is not just 
um, some kind of incantation that might be spoken, which was very common with a lot of gods. We're going to say their name, and now they're going to have to bow to our will. Mm-hmm. This is this is different. It's distinct. The name is reminding me of who you are and who I can trust you to be. Right. And so this whole psalm, it, we have to bear that in mind. This is the opening verse. This is telling us how we should think about what follows. And we have to keep this line in mind. Everything that follows hinges on God's nature, his essence, and his reputation. And if we don't keep that in mind, then we're going to have a pretty messed up psalm. Right. So um, the, the second verse, uh, the line calls out for vindication. And, and the question is, what are we vindicating? Are we vindicating the psalmist? Are we vindicating David in what he's done? Are we vindicating... Um, God's character? Are we vindicating the psalmist's faith in God's character? Hmm. And because vindication is not, it's one of those words that can either be very, um, it can be very positive, but can also carry some negative connotations. It's just too close to vengeance. It's too close to the idea of being some... Of retribution. Exactly. Exactly. And so we as Christians, you know, this is not an idea that we cling to, this idea of retribution or vengeance. And we're told, you know, turn the other cheek, go the extra mile. Mm-hmm. These are part of, of our culture and a part of our faith. And so to hear one of God's people say, I need to be vindicated, it can be a little disturbing. So we're going to go through the rest of the psalm and try to understand what the message is the psalmist is trying to present. So verse 3. For strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. So first off, strangers here, that that is an appropriate translation. But a better translation, if we take the superscription in mind and we we think about the scene that it's supposed to be applied to, uh, a better translation is estranged. So the idea that this is someone that David knew but had made themselves a stranger mm, to yeah. him. I can see that. Yeah. So now it fits with the Ziphites um, because, like I said, they they were family. Even if it's just distant family, they they were family. So they do not set God before themselves. Um, the Midrash Shoker uh, Tov reads this as these men failed to let Torah rule their lives and disregarded uh, Deuteronomy twenty seven four, which says that cursed be those who smite a friend in secret. And this is God talking to the nation of Israel. He's affirming, when you curse somebody, and when you smite a friend, when you hurt somebody who's trusted you, I'm going to bring curses on you. Mm-hmm. This is who I am, because you don't hurt my people. Mm. And so this, this line here, it, the rabbis are saying, specifically refers to the sin of the Ziphites, because they did estrange themselves from David, and they hurt God's chosen. Mm. And... I mean, that's pretty heavy when you think about how many church splits and fights and feuds and mean things that Christians have done to each other. And I mean, that kind of gives me pause about how I may have treated people in the past and, you know, makes me really think about how I'm going to treat people in the, the future. But, but the point of this is because these people did not honor what God had said, now God has to honor what he has said. Right. 
And, and, and if God's not going to honor what he's revealed to the people as truth, then is he really upholding his name and is, is he defending his reputation? Mm-hmm. So we're right back there. That, that first line got, has to come back into play. And so the, the actions, uh, their actions towards David reveal they don't care about God. So verse four, and this is the ESV. I'm going to read the Art Scroll translation too. It says, Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. Now, okay, it, it kind of works, but I, I do like the art scroll better. It says, behold, God is my helper. The Lord is with the supporters of my soul. And that, that's plural there. And it is plural in the Masoretic. And I think it's a more accurate representation of the Hebrew. Because David's contrasting those who've betrayed him with those who support him, the ones who have been faithful to him and been kind to him and actually helped him pursue God's goal in his life. And I like that idea of God being with, with those of us who support others who are taking, you know, who are actively pursuing God and that David would stop and pray on behalf of his friends. I mean, these people had put their lives on the line just as much as David had. Mm -hmm. Just being associated, I mean, David's family had to flee and go hide in the wilderness with him because they didn't know what Saul's done. And they, they were kind of obligated to do this. But now all of these crowds, this, these masses of, of those in debt and bitter in spirit and all of that, those who, who had joined David, they didn't have to take the side that put them in danger. They could have stayed home and just acted like everything was fine and, and just waited to see how the chips fell. But they actively went to David and you know maybe it was because they they had hoped that this is going to be the kind of king that they're going to have it might be they think that he's going to be able to provide for them somehow but i also think it's because they really really want to see a king that isn't part of that old guard the status quo mm-hmm. where it's all about the wealthy it's all about those with a proper reputation and the good family but it it really is about how God brings the marginalized into community and into family. And I think even if we don't have the words to express it, there is a part of us, every single one of us, that that's one of our biggest desires, that we be a part of that community where we're all pursuing what God wants. Right. And, uh, you know, and you can get restless whenever you get cut off from that kind of community. So... I, I like not only what it says about um, people who support others who are pursuing God's call in their life, but I also like the way it contrasts within the Hebrew between the Zephites and the band of men who follow David. And it does follow the Hebrew. So, you know, that's, that's the other thing. So it follows the text. It's a good rendering mm-hmm. of the text. Mm-hmm. But I think the, the message there that the art scroll provided as opposed to the ESV, I, I, it re- resonates with me. And it resonates with me even more so than what the ESV has. So uh, the ESV on verse five says, he will return evil to my enemies in your faithfulness, put an end to them. Now, one of the beautiful things about a lot of the the Hebrew translations, they're great because they're a little bit more forceful. And the, the art scroll says, may he repay evil to my watchful enemies and your truth cut them down. And so it's not as polite and it's not as politically correct as the ESV. What does the JPS say on that one? Uh, it says he will repay by your fa- uh, he will repay evil uh, of my watchful foes by your faithfulness. Destroy them. Destroy them. Okay. Yeah. So put an end, cut them down, destroy them. 
you know, they all mean the same thing, but one's just a little more vivid than the other. Yeah. I, I, I kind of, uh, I mean, it's, and it's interesting here. You have this contrast of faithfulness and destruction at the, you know, mm-hmm. juxtaposed. You have something that's supposed to be sustaining, ending something else. And it, that reminds me of uh, when Paul says the God of peace will soon crush Satan. And especially if you think of, you know, nothing missing, nothing broken. And then he's, but he's crushing Satan. And you have this, these weird juxtaposition of terms going on. I, I like that. Well, and I think, you know, one of the things that we have a tendency to think is that kindness and goodness and gentleness and all of these things, which are admirable traits and things that we're supposed to cultivate in our own life, mm-hmm. uh, somehow means that we aren't supposed to stand up for justice. It somehow means that we're not supposed to confront enemies and people who are doing harm. Um, and we lose the balance that, you know, it's just like we talked about uh, in one of the episodes we recorded this this uh, past weekend. Those who are cr- kind to the cruel will be cruel to the kind. Mm-hmm. And, and so you really have to ask when you're looking at this kind of juxtaposition of kindness and cruelty and faithfulness and all of this, who's receiving the kindness? Right. And, you know, if somebody hurt my kids... Is it kindness for me to allow that person to, to, who's hurting them to continue? Or do I stop them in any way I possibly can, even if that means hurting them? Right. So, you know, the kids need kindness. And, and David is God's kid. We're God's kids. So whoever's hurting us automatically makes them an enemy of God. Mm-hmm. And the only way that God can be true to the truth he has revealed and to his reputation, his name, is to stop that enemy right and so and sometimes that means violence so um that that's what david is setting up here for us in this contrast that the these people have not observed the torah they they have been against him and now god's going to he's going to stop them and it's going to be a kindness to david that his enemies are stopped Mm -hmm. so Verse six, with a free will offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. Now, David said he's bringing a free will offering. What's interesting about this is it is a free will offering. It's, it's not a thanksgiving offering. Mm-hmm. Um, a thanksgiving offering would be appropriate once the danger has passed. The free will offering is kind of in anticipation. It's an act of obedience, honoring what he's hoping to see from God. Now, I do find it interesting because in the JPS, it says, then I will offer you a free will sacrifice. So this actually kind of puts it in a future tense as opposed to present tense. Yeah, it, the, the preposition there um, is one of those that can, again, context is going to determine how you translate it. Mm-hmm. So with uh, is what the ESV has with a free will offering. Uh, I didn't write down what the art scroll was here. Uh, then is also an appropriate tra- translation of it. So it is going to depend on context. The, the, when the rabbis were making comments on it, they, they do see it as a present tense, that this was something that David was actively engaging in even before. Uh, because typically when you're, when you're thankful for something God has moved on your behalf, then you are going to give that, that Thanksgiving offering once you've seen it, once you've received. Right. And so they, 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 they read it as this being prior to that deliverance. And David 
proactively saying it's going to happen. So I'm going to go ahead and celebrate even before I see it. Right. So you're, you're saying that it is actually like traditionally it's taken to be future, future tense. Yeah. Well, actually present tense, present tense, sorry. Present tense. Yeah. The the idea that David would, would do this before in anticipation. And we, we kind of see that theme throughout the, the Psalms that, you know, David comes to God with his problem and he says, this is the problem. And he, he, you know, kind of rails at the heavens for a while. And mm-hmm. then he, he makes that shift where he begins Thanksgiving, even before God has responded in any way or manner that David can witness and see, oh, yes, God has actually heard me. Right. And so we, it's not something that we're um, unfamiliar with. It's just David now is making this concrete vow to, well, a vow to do something concrete. Right. And so now the Hebrew is a little ambiguous because we don't know when he says it, for it is good. We don't know if it's God's name is good or if it's good to thank God in advance. It could apply to either one. Uh, we're, we're, We've got a, a variety of opinions on that. There's really no consensus. And, you know, the, neither one's wrong. Right. <laughs> and so you can't argue against it. Uh, but verse 7, For he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. So th- this closing verse is, is actually one of the more troubling verses in Psalms. There's far more troubling verses in Psalm that we'll get to mm-hmm. later. But this one is very troubling to a lot of people because it feels like David's gloating, that he is being vindictive. Sure. And so... It kind of looks that way. Well, yeah. I mean, if you just... If you, but that's where we got to put it back in context. Uh, and we've got to go back to why is David praying all this? He begins... Oh God, save me by your name, by your reputation, by who you've revealed yourself to be. Mm-hmm. And so he's not saying, I'm, I'm so happy my enemies have been avenged. He's saying, I'm so happy that my God has been upheld, that he's been shown to be true who he is, that his character hasn't been uh, maligned or called into question because of the way the situation is played out. Right. And this is this is the problem whenever we start talking about God's justice so often people kind of get up in arms and they think oh my goodness the god of the old testament is so angry and so violent god tells us how to avoid his anger and his wrath right. he spells it out very clearly and when you recognize that all of those laws uh, and i know we keep repeating this but all of these laws are about preserving life. And I'm beginning to see how big of a, of a theme this is in mm-hmm. David's world, that the preservation of life has to come first within the law of, 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 that God has given us. Uh-huh. And sometimes preserving a life, I mean, okay, so I raised chickens. Or I did. I don't have any right now. And I'm sad about it. But, you know, preserving the life of my freaking chickens sometimes means that I have to go in and remove a snake from their nest. Sure. Yeah. And am I being mean to the snake? Absolutely. I mean, I'm depriving him of a meal, depending on how fast I get there. Um, but yeah, you know, it's, it's, but it's kindness to my chicken because I've had how many chickens killed by snakes trying to eat a chicken, number one, that's too big for them, Mm -hmm. which there's probably a life lesson there that could tie in. But, um, you know, this, 
kindness is not blanket acceptance of whatever anybody wants to do. Right. There has to be boundaries. And we have to remember, David didn't seek any of these men out as enemies. He didn't, he was in Saul's home ministering to Saul, taking care of Saul, making sure Saul could function on a day-to-day basis. And Saul's the one who comes after David. David didn't invite this, and David certainly didn't ask for the Ziphites to go to Saul and say, hey, you know, let's give you your enemy. And so David really is, he's innocent in this. And so when when we have the question, what is my sin? What is my guilt that I've done? Why do I deserve to die? I mean, these are legitimate questions because at this point, you know, we know David's going to go on and do terrible things in the future. At this point, David hasn't done anything. And as far so, as we know, as nothing, far as, nothing recorded in the text. And you have to think that the writer of Samuel, if he had an opportunity to say something negative about David, probably would have taken it. Right, right. Because, um, and we've mentioned this in early episodes, but just in case anyone forgot, you know, in Samuel, you have that whole horrible account with David and Bathsheba and Uriah. In the book of Chronicles, you don't, because Samuel is very much about pointing out the flaws within the monarchy. And it's not just the monarchy. It it is about people who are grasping at powers that they shouldn't have. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, even Samuel the prophet, you know, when he started trying to dictate to the king how the king should act, that's when Samuel's ministry starts to fall off. And this is when the people come up against him. Saul, when he starts grasping for power that he doesn't deserve, that's whenever his, you know, his reign is at an end and God says no more. David, when he starts grasping for power that isn't his, he's going to get in trouble, but David's always going to repent. And so, you know, David's, but back to verse seven, David here, he isn't, he isn't gloating because his enemies have been defeated. We have to remember David doesn't have any of these enemies until he steps into that mission God's called him Mm -hmm. to. Mm Mm-hmm. It's only when he aligns himself with God's purpose for his life that now he's a target. And by extension, this means that if you are an enemy of David, you're an enemy of God. Mm -hmm. And God's not going to let that stand, that kind of defiance. And so, yes, David's personal enemies are defeated, but it's not... It's not just his enemies, it's the enemies of God. And, you know, the fact that... If David had just stayed home and watched the sheep, <laughs> none of this would have been an issue for him. Right. And, you know, and I think that's a really big learning point for, for us because I know sometimes whenever God calls us into a new thing and then you come up against all of this opposition and it's like, oh, well, this must be a sign I shouldn't continue forward. Aren't you glad David didn't have that mindset? Right. Because I mean, I know it's happened in my life. I'm like, okay, so is this a sign I should stop? Is this? Yeah, and then you know, and also keep in mind, just because there is resistance doesn't necessarily mean that you're in the right place either. You have to take it in balance. You know, check it against God's word. Um, what a it, novel concept! Is it is it helping you grow in character to look and behave and think more like God, more like Jesus? You know, mm-hmm. th- those are the things that we really have to take into account because. There, you know, on one hand, you have the people who, if there's no resistance, everything must be going well. <laughs> and then on the, and then on the other extreme of that is, oh, everyone's against me, so I must be doing something, <laughs> right? And that that can be taken 
to a far extreme as well. It's all about balance. And, you know, I, I know that's not a word we often associate with scripture. Uh, you know, we like to be sold out for Jesus and radical revolutionaries. Um, but th- this idea that, that we do balance and weigh things against God's word, I mean, it's, that's huge. And, you know, and I think part of what, what gives David the um, confidence to, to pray like this is he knew this was God's purpose and call in his mm-hmm, life. Mm-hmm. I mean, well, if you have a prophet come to you and anoint you, that's going to be kind of a big deal. Yeah, that, that's kind of hard to deny. And, and I wish that, you know, we could kind of have that today. You know, I just need somebody from a random town show up. And, you know, actually, I've had that happen, but that's a whole other weird set of weirdness that's going on. But, um, but I wanted to actually take just a second because this is you know, this psalm is supposed to tie back to the Ziphites, and it's supposed to talk about that moment where um, the Ziphites had betrayed David. But there's also a possibility that the Psalms 34, which we talked about earlier, addresses some of this situation too. Mm-hmm. Because remember, we don't know exactly when the Psalms were written. Um, they, were they written actually at the time that David was, you know, in the hills on the run, were they written later as he's reflecting on those events? Um, were they written by someone else and attributed to, to David? But when you go back to Psalms 34 and you know the story of the Ziphites and you know that story of that Malak, that messenger that shows up, now it kind of makes this verse here. Let's see, where did it go? I had it one moment ago, but I looked away. and. And we're certain it's 34. We're certain it's 34. <laughs> I, I guarantee you that it's 34. Um, I've got it. Where did it go? Oh, there know. it is. Okay, verse, verse 7. Sorry. But it makes verse uh, 7 and of Psalms 34 make a little bit more sense. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear and delivers them. And so there's a possibility that even though 34 was, t- was tied to this time that David was hiding in the caves, was it the first time he's hiding in the caves? Was it really at Adula or was it later? And is this reference to the angel of the Lord referring to that messenger that shows up whenever mm-hmm. Saul's almost ready to, to attack David? So you've got these, again, the, these threads and these overlying con- and, you know, these underlying connections that only whenever you read in context and you put them into the historical setting, do we get that, that deeper kind of, well, now, wait a minute, what's going on? What Mm -hmm. if it it enables us to ask deeper questions? And so when we read these Psalms and put them back onto David's story and think about where he was, I mean, these stop being just pretty, pretty little songs that you can sing on Sunday morning when you're wearing your Sunday vest. Now that there's some grit to them. Yeah. And yeah. Some reality going on where it's not just, oh, these are my random descriptors, uh, descriptors <laughs> of Yahweh. You know, it's, it becomes something concrete, you know, it has its feet in reality. Yeah, well, it's it's not that hallmark little cliche. It, it, it's, it does have something that, hey, I, I know what it's like to be in a horrible situation, and I'm not just in here denying the fact that I'm in a bad situation. Mm-hmm. And to think about David, you know, on the run, singing the songs, and when he's singing these songs, you've got to think about who would have been around him. 
Mm-hmm. Who who else would have heard? I mean, he's got 600 men and he's he's singing these and you've got to think they had to have heard this and this would have to have encouraged them to continue. And so even as David's encouraging himself, he, he's actually raising up and building up his army in a spiritual level when Saul could never sing to his people. He couldn't sing to the, the ones that he led. He had to have someone come do it for him. Right. And then if you'll remember back when we talked about the Kenor earlier, one of the hallmarks of a great king was his ability to be able to compose these mm-hmm. lyrical mm-hmm. songs. And so now David is showing what a great king he has the capability of that if we don't know, again, context, the cultural context and the historical context, we miss the fact that David's singing these songs while they're on the road, while they're on the run. Mm-hmm. It has a great significance. And I, I kind of um I, I I kind of get irritated that I feel like sometimes I almost feel cheated that I spent so many years just thinking thinking of the Psalms as cute little pretty poems that you you right. know cross stitch and put on the on the wall. And the fact that these are reflective of, of real life and times. I, I don't know, it just it, this past week going through the Psalms, and that's what I've been doing so much work, it's just been within the past week. And it's like you go through these and they just, it's like, oh, man, that applies to this situation in my life and this situation in my life. And it just hits you in the gut mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in a way that, I mean, I'd never been hit by Scripture, uh, the Psalms in particular. I mean, I, yeah. I've been, Scripture has obviously impacted me greatly, but... I've kind of always just neglected this, the Psalms and thought of them as, oh, here's the hymn book. You yeah, know? <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and that's, you know, unfortunately, that's the way it's presented. It really is presented as, well, here's, here's the poetry. and <laughs> You can skip that. Or you've got the other side of that where people, that's all they read. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And so, and I, I thought it was a good lesson for me personally to, to actually have to look at my own laziness in approaching the Bible. Am I supposed too, to admit that? I'm, I'm, yeah, <laughs> no, I get it. I'm, with the Psalms, I, I have been a kind of, kind of neglectful, which is part of the reason I want to go through them, looking at them compared to where they are in the, in the scriptures, because mm-hmm. it, it does bring that depth to everything. I, I'm just, yeah. And I'm such a visual thinker that, you know, I, I do have this image of David, you know, maybe perched on the rock somewhere and he's got the men hiding out in the various caves on the hills and him sitting there singing it and the, the sound ringing off the, the hills. I mean, this is my image, of course. And Saul trying to figure out exactly where is the song coming from sure. as it echoes back and forth. <laughs> and, and I mean, just the thought of that gives me goosebumps because you can you can just almost see Saul being crushed under the weight of the songs that used to to build him up. Mm-hmm. And now, I mean, like I said, that's that's my image. I can't. That's just speculation. Yeah. As, but I am a visual thinker, so this is kind of that's where I go with it. And I I think sometimes that helps me understand the scripture. But I also have to have people who go, now wait a minute, yeah, don't don't go too far. But you know, David. Oh no, when you read the Psalms and you see the emotion behind them, you can't imagine that David's like one of those very well studied, um, meticulous songwriters who who planned out each meter and rhyme and verse and, and 
and was just technically proficient. You you get this idea that he is the kind of songwriter that it just burst out. Right. And right. I, I'm not saying that, you know, he didn't study those things, but you, you get this feeling that, you know, he could have been just sitting there alone and you know, this is his thoughts. And, and as they're, they're rolling through his head, the, the music just, it just happens. Right. So, and, you know, I've hung out with enough songwriters that I kind of get to see how y'all guys work occasionally. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it varies depending on the song. I mean, there's some songs that you do, you start and you just, you, you, some of them you wrestle with and you rework lines a hundred different ways. Um, some of them you, you just start singing and you're like, oh, wow, well, that was really good. Make sure <laughs> let's, I hope the tape was rolling on that. We, you got that. Um, but, you know, it's, it just depends on the song. And, it, you know, of course, our instinct is to believe that they're the songs, the, the best songs are the ones that just kind of roll out. Mm-hmm. And they and some of them tend to be. I mean, you're, you're oftentimes shocked by those things mm-hmm. that just pop into your head. Um, but, you know, it's sometimes it's those ones where you really <laughs> put it, you know, put it to the test and, and you rewrote it and rewrote it and rewrote it. I mean, it. There's a there's a great episode of Broken Record. Is it Broken Record or is it Revisionist History? There's one of them. It's a Malcolm Gladwell episode or a series, and they do an episode on Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah. Mm. And that thing had like 57 verses. It didn't had it? it had several several verses, most of which did not get produced. Cohen actually um, released it on two different records with two different versions. And it wasn't until it got picked up by, I want to say the guy from the Velvet Underground, mm. and he selected the verses he liked. So his, his arrangement has actually kind of become the official arrangement right. in, in selected verses of that song. But there's, um, there's several verses that did not ever make it into the, the mainstream. Then, of course, Jeff Buckley was the one who really popularized it. It's just random trivia. A lot of people don't realize that Cohen actually means priest in Hebrew. And uh, if you listen to that song, by the way, if you perform that song in church, you shouldn't. Um, Just (laughs) a lot of people have been confused that it it is a Christian song. It's not, even though it has the word hallelujah in it. Um, But uh, it does contain a lot of biblical references because uh, Leonard Cohen was very familiar with the Bible. Mm -hmm. And uh, I actually, I I enjoy his music a lot because he is that thought-provoking person. And it's kind of interesting that one of, even if you don't know, even if you think you don't know who Leonard Cohen is, you know who Leonard Cohen is. Right. right. And his music is, it's been all over the place. And, um, but yeah, that, that idea of taking, I think it's the balance that we have to strike as creative individuals and even more so as individuals of faith. How do you take that moment of inspiration, which means to breathe in the spirit of God mm-hmm. and to, to create something brand new and you know, still put the mechanics and the technical skills that you have behind it and not to, to rely so much on, you know, what you've learned in a mechanical way, but also not to think that inspiration trumps the structures and forms. Right. Because a lot of people don't even realize that psalm writing is not unique to Israel. We have Egyptian psalms. We have mm-hmm, Ugaritic mm-hmm. psalms. We have, I'm sorry, maybe not Ugaritic. Don't quote me on that one. But anyway, but we have other ancient mm-hmm. psalms out there. And so the, this idea that this is somehow something that David came up with on his own, 
Uh, it's it's not true. He he was influenced by the culture around him. And this is the other thing. I mean, I know this is kind of far field. But, you know, so often we see people talking and bad-mouthing um, modern worship music. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, David was creating the kind of music that people in his day and time liked to hear. Right. And so it was not that he was doing something so sacred that you wouldn't have heard this style someplace else. This would have been a style that you would have heard as you were walking down the streets of any city at that point mm-hmm. in time, mm-hmm. going out to the pasture to check on the, the sheep and goats. You'd probably hear other shepherds singing their songs to their sheep because that's how you keep them calm. Uh, so, you know, it is modern worship music um, the end all be all? No. It is, are the old hymns the end all be all? No. And what we forget about the old hymns is that the really bad ones just got left out of the rotation each. And so yeah, it was a yeah. sifting process. Yeah, we've got a, a you know, 400 year running greatest hits basically is what we've got. And, Pretty and much. All the, you know, all the other tracks were left out. Well, so. and, and, you know, and, and we only sing the same five every Sunday and we sing the first, second, third, ver- or last verse. So, I right, mean, right. Uh, we don't know why the third verse was written uh, for whatever reason. Filler. <laughs> contract. <laughs> I, I don't know. Sorry. Yeah. yeah but, <laughs> contract requirements. So, yeah. yeah that's but, not what's happening. But I, I, I think just, like I said, just thinking of the Psalms in, uh, not only within the context of David's life, but also within the, culture and the cultural and the historical context that, that these were, this was music. That the, mm-hmm. Just like we would turn on the radio today, it, it, it's the music that people wanted to hear. And so David evidently epitomized the best of that. And mm-hmm. that's the reason why it's saved. And we, we actually have uh, records of more Psalms than just these that we have in our Bible that David might've written. Right. Maybe not. We don't know. But I, I, I was going to make this point earlier when you were talking about that wrestling with, I think maybe possibly what may have happened. And I'm just like, said speculation. You know, J- David had the the essence of the psalm mm-hmm. on the road, yeah, and then he went back and refined them. That would have not surprised me at all. Yeah, that's and that's so, not uncommon either. Yeah, so I mean, and the, we shouldn't think that the process wouldn't be somewhat similar. Uh, you know, kind of across the board for musicians. Yeah. But well, cool. Well, do we have anything else, or is that? I don't know. I feel like I've been rambling for the last twenty minutes. Uh, <laughs> who knows? Maybe so. <laughs> Well, everyone, thanks for joining us, and um, we're going to see you next time. If you want to be part of the conversation, as always, RavenCreekSC.com or RavenCreekSC on all the social media. Um, we love hearing what you have to say. Um, you, help, you help keep us going. You help drive the show's direction a little bit. Um, and, you know, let us know uh, what you think. Hit us up on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a review and a rating. That helps people find us, which, you know, if you want people to find us, that's the easiest way to help. (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, If not, don't. So I don't know. It's whatever (laughs) you got going on this weekend. But I appreciate you being here, and we'll see you next time. Thanks. (laughs) Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.